What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the TMT podcast, a production of Arnold Porter's Technology, Media, and Telecommunications Group. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. Today, I am here with one of my longtime friends, colleagues, client, and mentor, current CEO of Squad, Mark Krigsman. Mark, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Evan. And you left out fellow foodie. Oh, we're going to get to that. Don't worry. So thank you for joining us, Mark. I'm really happy that you decided to spend some time with me today, talk about the complex media landscape and what else you're doing for Squad these days. But before we get to all that, let's talk about the foodie stuff. So you and I have a long history together of dining out at various restaurants around the country. At the end of this pandemic, where are you looking to go most? Well, I, I, I honestly think we have to figure out ways to top the foodie visits that we've had in the past and finding those little personalized uh, locations where uh, the chef caters specifically to you. That's the one we have to find. And so I'll have to do some research. But when we found those little personalized ones where it's just six or seven people in the restaurant and the chef basically riffs, that's to me the ones that were always the best ones. I agree. I love those. And I'm looking forward to getting back to that and getting on a plane again. Although I know you fly so much, you may not be looking to get back on the plane, but you know, all of us are looking forward to opening it up. So tell our listeners who don't know about you a little bit about it, your background, how you got in media. And for those listening at home, uh, Mark has somewhat of a auspicious background. He is one of the founding folks of the X Games. So if you are listening to this and you are of the, I guess, not no longer the younger generation, my generation or, or below, and you love watching the X Games, you can uh, give some credit of that to our current guest, Mr. Kurtzman. Thank you. It was, a, it was a team of us that worked on the X Games, but uh, uh, launching the X Games was truly one of the highlights of my career and eventually launching uh, X Game tours around the country, as well as uh, the Winter X Games were true, true highlights. Um, I got started in the media industry from a very young age. Uh, I always had a passion for television. I always had a passion for making uh, television programs. And at a very young age, when I was in eighth grade, I had the fortunate opportunity to have a math teacher by the name of Joe Tartikoff. And I was an eighth grader. I had no idea anything about the Tartikoff name, but uh, Joe Tartikoff Come on, was, Joe Tartikoff of Brandon Tartikoff fame? Joe Tartikoff of Brandon Tartikoff fame, my eighth grade math teacher. And he knew of my passion for television and one day asked uh, my mom if uh, it would be okay for him to uh, uh, take me into uh, a television studio. And uh, that's when I uh, got started in the business. And so I credit Joe Tartikoff or Brennan Tartikoff fame uh, for the starting of my career uh, back in the eighth grade. And in fact, uh, I, I, I started working in television back in the eighth grade for Cablevision Systems, which was doing a joint venture between NBC and Cablevision. We created original content and original programming, and I've been in, uh, in media ever since. So uh, yes eighth grade math teacher. <laughs> I've, known, I've known you for almost 10 years. That is a story I've not heard before. That's awesome. My favorite show growing up was Saved by the Bell, which was on NBC Saturday mornings. 
And the only reason I know who Brandon Tartikoff is is because he showed up sometimes introducing the show to the listeners. That's insane. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't know he did that. But Brandon, Brandon was truly, uh, unfortunately, went, went way too young in his, in his life, but truly uh, a visionary. And he's the one that put NBC Thursday Night TV on the map. Uh, he's the one that brought so many great programs to the air whether it be Hill Street Blues or any of the more recent programs that, that people credit NBC's uh, huge, huge presence to, they, they're undoubtedly uh, because of Brandon Tartikoff. And you know the highlight of my career, you talk about ESPN, one of the highlights of my career was uh, when I came out to California, I had a, a really cool job at ESPN. I was brought in at a time when ESPN had more viewership than ever before, but one of the problems they had was that the demographic that was watching ESPN was aging up and the advertisers wanted the younger demographic. And the younger demographic, while huge sports fans, was consuming media differently than uh, uh, today's, uh, or that at that time, uh, viewers were consuming media. And so uh, I was brought in into this unique position of creating different types of programs, unique programs that weren't necessarily event-based programs. And so we created things like uh, the first miniseries and the first movies and the first theatricals. We brought back fun programs like World's Strongest Man, which had disappeared, and we brought that back, and now that's a mainstay. Uh, uh, in fact, I just saw uh, World's Strongest Man was on a progressive commercial. It's really become a uh, mainstay. We even did an animated series uh, for, for ESPN in conjunction with Sony Pictures. That unfortunately never made it to air because right before air date, Disney acquired uh, ABC and ESPN, and uh, decided that that animated series wasn't uh, going to uh, to make the light of day, but still a lot of fun creating an animated series uh, for ESPN. Um, but anyway, the, the, the highlight of my career with Brandon Tartikoff was right before, it was almost a few months before he passed, I was out in LA uh, looking for new program ideas, meeting with new program producers for ESPN. And Brandon said, hey, let's have lunch. He sat down at Cantor's Deli and pitched me a show concept, a show idea. And I said to him, I'm done. There's nothing more in my career that I have to do. The Brandon Tartikoff is now pitching me a show idea. I, I, there's nothing more I can achieve. And this was his stupid putts. <laughs> That's funny. Stupid putts by Brandon Tartikoff. <laughs> Yes. And he pitched it to me because he knew that I had previously created a show, uh, uh, a, a video, which is right up there called Bad Golf Made Easier with, uh, with uh, uh, Leslie Nielsen. And so uh, uh, he's like, you should do a whole series. And he literally, um, the, the first line is he's in the spirit of America's funniest home videos, the popular basketball, football blunder tapes, and the Leslie Nielsen golf videos comes stupid putts um and uh you know it's a comedy golf basically uh series i bet people don't even know who leslie nielsen is anymore I mean, uh, it was so damn yeah. funny <laughs> at, at the deli i mean that's awesome so you i know you went to syracuse which is the alma mater of the managing partner of my law firm so hopefully he listens to this and gets a shout out here um did you get into ESPN because you went to Syracuse and because it's a big broadcast school and that's where all the 
the founders of the ESPN went. Is that how you got in there? No, it's actually uh, funny because there are so many Syracuse alumni uh, at ESPN. I got to ESPN through ABC. I was actually brought into ABC as uh, a really unique position. It was an, almost an intrapreneur position. You know, there are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs work inside of larger companies to create new initiatives. And so I was brought into ABC into a role to help them extend their media assets into other platforms, uh, whether those platforms be uh, home video, which at the time was, was hugely popular, uh, or uh, to this new thing called the internet, um, where they were made at the time, there were three main players, CompuServe, Prodigy, and, um, and AOL. And uh, uh, so I was brought in to do that stuff. And at the time, ESPN was having this issue. And so I made an internal transfer from ABC to ESPN. And that's how I got to ESPN. But I actually started my career at NBC companies. So I know you do more, less traditional media now. You've, I, I know you've transferred or trans moved into not content creation, but you know, data analytics and, and analysis of the media landscape and and what's happening. So I want to talk and, you know, pick your brain a little bit about that, that now that, that I have you here. So why don't you tell our listeners what you have been doing lately? And by lately, I mean, since you have left sort of the big media landscape and gone off on your own as a, as a founder uh, and as an entrepreneur, less of an uh, entrepreneur that you just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, having created so many successful businesses for large companies like Fox and others and having those businesses be sold um, I figured it was time for me to uh, set out on my own. And really the concept for the first business was rooted in the fact that when we launched or started so many cable networks, and this is back uh, with Fox, with ESPN and others, every single one of those cable networks had the same problem. Every day they had all of these commercial units that they had to fill, yet they couldn't fill them all. And commercials are a perishable asset asset, just like a hotel room where you can't save a hotel room for the busy Christmas season or for the busy holiday season, you can't save a commercial. And so you needed to fill that hole with something. And the last thing that the networks wanted to do is let the marketplace know we were unsold or we didn't have unsold inventory. And so that inventory would get filled with things like coming up tonight on ESPN or coming up tonight on such and such. And after a while, the viewers would get sick of hearing tune-in spots. And so what ended up getting into those commercial units would be direct response. And it was not the best direct response back then. We're talking about things like Floby, the haircutting vacuum and uh, the self-cleaning kitty litter box. And Tybo. Those kinds of things. Well, Tybo was actually probably higher profile no. than than the Floby. Floby. Um, but yes, Tybo would fit into the mix. Did and, you, have you know, a inevitably, I'm I sorry? bet you had a. I bet you had a Floby. Uh, I, you know what? I didn't have a Floby, um, but you know, probably my hair would have looked better if I had a Floby because why wouldn't your hair look good with uh with with a vacuum cleaner cutting your hair so of i course, need a floby right now i need a floby for my covid covid mane that everyone would like me to cut thankfully these podcasts are not on video and no one can see what my hair looks like well i i think you look good i've seen you and i i, th I think you're styling and you 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 handle it well i don't know if i could handle that look but you you handle it well all right thanks thanks mark 
but anyway, the 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 point being is that uh, you know if you're somebody like Coca Cola and you just paid you know a hundred thousand dollars for some commercial placements, and then all of a sudden you're watching your ads because they watch every ad, they watch to see what came in before them, what came in after them, and uh, the spot that comes up after you is Chia Pet. Clearly, you know that Chia Pet didn't have the same budget, and so the first business that I created was a platform that a lot of people have later described as the price line, but for television commercials. It was a platform that allowed inventory owners, whether you were local broadcast stations, cable operators, cable networks, or whoever it is, it allowed you an opportunity to monetize your otherwise unsold asset, your otherwise unsold commercials, in a way that kept it blind from the general marketplace so that you can maintain rate integrity while still at the same time filling those units with high quality brand advertising uh, for a, a discounted price, but not having to reveal that to the marketplace. Uh, there's a lot more to that business. It was basically became machine to machine and 100% automated, uh, creating the, the beginning days of programmatic television um, and ultimately, uh, uh, we were able to successfully transact that business in 2013. Uh, and today that business goes by the name of Cadent. So that's that business. After leaving that business, um, I was brought back in by Clarion Capital to uh, help them with another acquisition they had done, a company called Squad. Uh, Squad is a data analytics and software service provider that provides technology solutions for brands and advertisers to figure out how to manage themselves in this ever more complex, fragmented media world. All right, so let's stop there because I want to I want to talk more about that. You you just mentioned programmatic, you know, television. What does programmatic television, or I what I'm familiar with, programmatic advertising? What does that mean? So programmatic means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but in the end, I think the best way to understand programmatic is that it's machine to machine transactions. In other words, you as a user will put in what your desired result is, and then the machines go off and, and assemble the assets to deliver that desired result. And it is without human interaction, or for the most part, without human interaction where traditional television sales or traditional media sales have always been uh, to a buyer and a seller discussing with each other, two people having a discussion, doing a negotiation. The programmatic world is all done through machines and through bid processes and through uh, uh, less human interaction. Obviously there has to be some human interaction in the beginning and there has to be some human interaction at the end, but really, uh, less human interaction. And that's the way I understand programmatic. I, I like to describe programmatic. So like we just had the upfront season, uh, what is it in April or May for uh, advertising and advertisers with networks? What does that mean? Is that, do they use programmatic methods of, of purchasing? How does that work? I think programmatic will become more and more uh, commonplace in those types of settings. However, the upfronts try to drive higher value and try to promote uh, platforms for the content they have. I mean, the reality is content owners 
are all in the same business. They're all in the business of marketing products. Everyone thinks that, that it's all about the pretty pictures, but the pretty pictures are there to attract an audience. And they attract an audience so that ultimately they can sell a consumer a particular product. And this goes all the way back to the beginning days of, let's just stay on television for a second, the beginning days of television, where you had programs like Texaco Star Theater. The whole purpose of the content was to ultimately deliver a marketing message. And unless you're a paid service like an HBO or something similar to that, you are deriving your revenue through advertising and ultimately the content that is there is to drive higher advertising. So the upfronts is a way to showcase the premier content that you have coming up in this upcoming year and to get advanced commitments from brands and agencies on your programming that you have and the dollars that you need to support it. So if this is true, how do we apply that paradigm sort of of content driven by advertising to what's happening in media right now with all the streaming services and the the pandemic forcing everybody to be on their computer with the streaming services all the time? How, how does that affect what's happening now? Yeah, I mean, there's little doubt in my mind that we will all look back at the last few years as a really significant turning point in the history of the media business. Digital transformation has dramatically accelerated. The remote work experience is becoming at least partially permanent and the use of technology and media has exploded. I saw an interesting statistic the other day that said that in 2020, nearly 14 hours a day, uh, people spent nearly 14 hours a day with media in the United States. And I'm assuming that statistic is probably the same with other uh, geographies. And really, uh, that, that amount of time and the consumption of media is something that the pandemic uh, accelerated. And, and when you tie this back to, to uh, uh, advertising, advertising has been a critical growth engine for media for decades and will be for decades to come. But the media industry today is in this cha constant change, constant disruption and innovation like streaming TV, mobile apps, and all these other things has really changed the way that we're consuming media. And so I think that uh, the, the, the pandemic has taken what probably would have happened over the course of the next five to 10 years and really crunched it down into a period of now, what, 18 months? So how, how do advertisers figure out now how to monetize uh, their their content or how to inject themselves to be you know still part of the media process. So uh, the 14 hours a day, for example, how are advertisers ensuring that that they're getting eyeballs on on what they needed to to be on? Yeah, I mean, well, it, both advertisers and content owners are working to address the change and the disruption and the need to deliver a unified customer experience is even more difficult for marketers today because in the end, marketers need to sell their or their clients' products. If it's an agency, their clients. If it's a direct advertiser, they need to sell their products to consumers. And so they need to market now to the way that the consumers are consuming media. And we have been plunged into this omni-channel marketplace, like I said, faster than anyone could have imagined. Um, again, brought on by the stay-at-home world that we just experienced. And 
I just remember growing up that their media choices I had for television were small. It was it was a couple of stations on on, on the dial that you would literally flip on the dial. Today, my children and, and consumers in general have unprecedented choices, thousands and thousands of choices. And they have extremely high beliefs of what they expect from their media providers. And so while media has always been driven by marketing and the ability to sell products to consumers in an ad supported media environment, content owners are now more driven to create content to capture the attention in this incredibly fragmented environment so that they can surround that content with marketer messages to ultimately sell products. And, and uh, I could I could keep riffing here, but yeah, no, I want to is- hear about this because I've got, you know, basically I've got TVs in my house that I almost never turn on now because I have a phone and an iPad and every freaking streaming app that you, that you know of and my kids watch. You would rather watch YouTube on their phones or their iPads than put on the television and actually sit through a 30 minute show. So how is advertising even factoring into that? How are they, how are they, the, the advertisers actually getting them, getting the, their message through this content that people are watching? Well, yeah. I mean, look, the content owners in general need to reinvent the ways that they're delivering their content so that they can capture the attention of the audiences like your children, and then ultimately try to be able to deliver marketing messages alongside that content to result in the revenue stream that they need. And it's not simple because in addition to having to create that compelling content for the different formats and for the different viewership types and then deliver that content to where the consumer wants to consume it in the ever increasing fragmented market, you then add on to that, that the marketers need to navigate that fragmented landscape so that they can now cobble together their targeted audiences who are consuming this content in all these different ways and then the part that they, they have to do at the end is ultimately prove that all this stuff they've done and all the effectiveness of their marketing efforts uh, has actually increased their or their client's bottom line. And it becomes so difficult because, as you said, that your, your kids are consuming it on the iPads or the iPhones, and you may be still using the big screen in your home, but you're using it different than you did before because the input in the back is now you know a, a digital input or is not your traditional cable input or maybe you have cable and you have these other services but it it, it it's it's the the complexity around it is is that now consumers today are bombarded with more marketing messages than they've ever been bombarded with before i forget what the number is but it was it was shocking that today uh, a consumer is actually on an everyday basis bombarded with over a thousand different marketing messages in and around their everyday life. And, and how do you break through that clutter? It's, it's, it's a huge, huge endeavor. I think of that Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report, which was awesome, by the way, yep. uh, where he walks into the gap and the screen goes, hello, Ethan, or whatever his name was. And it like shows a different outfit on him or would you like to purchase this again? And I feel like that movie wasn't very long ago, but we're, I think we're already past that point now with the type of marketing and targeted advertising that you get when you get online and something you've looked at just follows you around from site to site for the rest of the day. Yeah, there, there's no question. And, and sometimes it's a little bit uh, freaky. Um, 
being in the advertising business, I'm often researching clients' products and looking at client things. And sometimes the, the products are things that just are not for me and my demographic. You know, it, it could be um, something that's just not ever a product that I would use just based upon my my human makeup of who I am. I'm, I'm male, I'm not female. And I'll be researching because we have a client that's doing female targeted products. The next thing you know, every ad that is popping up on my normal uh, media consumption in my free time is the same stuff that's focused around uh, that uh, uh, search. That was a very deft way of, of walking around that issue. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was good. We tiptoe around it. So like the, the broadcasters used to have like, you know, the Nielsen ratings and you would target specific demographics and you'd say, all right, well, this show has, you know, this rating for the 45 to 64 age set and you could do your advertising budgets and track ROI and do it now. But at this point, you can't even do that. So are there products or services out there? Is this what Squad does? How do you help these content creators and the advertisers try and track their ROI or figure out where they need to spend their ad money? Well, it's, 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 it's really hard and it's, there's so much complexity and it's, it's, it's almost impossible for users to be able to, to do this manually anymore. And so at Squad, uh, we have mission critical tools and data services that really help marketers operate day to day. In many cases, our tools are the first applications that users use when they start their day. And it's one of the last ones to be shut down when it's time to go home. And what it does is it allows marketers to automate tasks, to make their teams more efficient and be able to handle the complexities of this fragmented environment. Uh, by, by being this platform, it, Squad is a platform that is basically the central source of truth. It's the place where all the teams can come together and know that the content they're looking at is the most up-to-date and accurate content. And it allows them to be able to, to synthesize a marketing initiative or a marketing plan that now has thousands of options to it or, or hundreds of choices or even 10 choices uh, together into one unified place where they can understand what's running at any given point in time, understand where they are in the budget, track how they are against what they expect the return to be, whether it be point of sale or you know ticket sales to an amusement park, it really doesn't matter. Our system allows them to put a plan together, to map that plan out, to execute that plan, and then during that plan to make adjustments, make changes so that ultimately they can reach that ultimate goal. So I basically need a squad button to push on my computer when I pull up a ridiculous clickbait that pops up and tells me that everything I'm reading when so-and-so celebrity has divorced so-and-so celebrity and had an affair with a different celebrity. This is not true, Evan. Click this button. It says <laughs> not true right in the front. That's what, that's, what, that's what the next thing squad needs to look at. Mark, so what do you think about the sort of coupling and then decoupling between the content providers and the pipe operators that's sort of happening in the industry and all this movement towards got to get in on streaming, got to get in on the content on the streaming and sort of next, next thing, what's going to happen next here in the, in the media industry? You know, if I knew the exact thing that was going to happen next, uh, I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you right now. I'd be going and doing that. <laughs> what are you talking but, about? This podcast is at the cutting edge, the avant-garde of exactly. the industry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I would be sitting here talking to you about it right now, but 
Uh, I wouldn't let you talk about it because I'd be go out there and executing uh, what that is. But the reality is the market is, is, is changing super fast. I find it really interesting that, uh, you know, all of the players are going out there with these direct to consumer offerings. And I remember not that long ago, I mean, we're talking, you know, 10 plus years ago, but not that long ago, that was the whole fight over whether or not a la carte and uh, your traditional cable programming could work together. And the, the thought behind that was that people wouldn't be willing to pay for a specific channel or for a specific programming service and that the economics around uh, having individuals pay for those specific programming services uh, wouldn't pay out the same way that traditional cable is. However, that is happening right now where this unbundling or this uncoupling of cable to people that are choosing direct services, whether it be you know the Disney Pluses or the Discovery offerings or uh, Paramount Plus or any of the other offerings that are out there that people uh, are asked to pay for, then add in the Netflixes and the Primes and all of the other uh, non-commercial offerings, all of a sudden you're getting to a price point where the consumer is paying just as much as they were paying for cable in the first place. And so you put yourself back into that same situation. And so what ultimately is going to happen, in my opinion, is that we're going to see more and more of this become advertiser supported because there's just so much dollars that a consumer is willing to spend for media out of their dispendable, you know, expendable income. And so uh, I think the, the trend is going to be towards more and more of these services using advertising as the form of revenue generation. So what was old is new again. Advertising is still going to be that driver. Marketing is still going to be the, the, plat, the, the way to pay for these platforms and the way to get the quality that you want because at some point in time, the consumer is going to say, I can't afford to buy another service. Yeah, this, this resonates with me, Mark, because I was a DirecTV subscriber for a very long time for the sole reason that they had the NFL Sunday ticket. And I wouldn't give it up because of that. But recently, I have cut the cord. I'm no longer a DirecTV subscriber. Sorry, DirecTV, because the streamers started being able to carry it. So I don't even, I have YouTube TV right now, basic thing. And I get the Red Zone channel and I can watch all the NFL games. But we also have Disney Plus, Apple Plus, Hulu Plus, Netflix, Prime, probably forgetting some, that if I had to aggregate all that and I don't really want to, I'm probably spending more than I was when I just had DirecTV. And so, I mean, this, this hits home with me. Yeah, 100%. A recent study that I saw just last week was very, very, very interesting that came out. It, it actually said that when you add up the cost of the average consumer's uh, um, uh, direct subscriptions, it's actually approaching $90 a month. And that that ninety dollars is pretty much what the average consumer also spent for cable, uh, or satellite, or otherwise uh, previously, and so it is it is getting to a point where the two platforms are similar. Um, I think the difference is, and where cable has this, and and satellite to a lesser point, but they did come up with a solution, is the ability to watch what you want when you want to watch it, and so a lot more of the streaming uh, services are offering uh, a deeper archive of, of content that you can watch when you want to watch it. 
The other thing that's really interesting is the economics around these direct-to-consumer offerings. Um, you know, are favorable. They don't have the the they don't have to share that revenue with the cable operators or the satellite providers like they did before. So that is a more favorable economic proposition for you know the direct streamers. And one of the things they're doing to incentivize people to move to the direct channel versus the traditional channel is they're putting a lot of their premium content on the direct channels exclusively versus also making it available to the traditional. And I find that to be you know, a little upsetting because if you are still a core subscriber of that service, then you should, and you're willing to pay uh, uh, for that service through your cable provider or your satellite provider, whoever it is, then you should have access to the same content versus being forced in some cases to add the other service. Um, and yeah, not I got two doing this. But. No, but I got two recent examples of that, actually. So Wonder Woman 84, decent movie, not as good as the first one, uh, streamed on HBO Max, but you didn't have to like get an upcharge. You just had to be an HBO Max subscriber. Same thing with Godzilla versus Kong, which was not that good. Uh, but recently, Cruella came out on the Disney Plus app but in order to get it, you got upcharged $30. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I am one of those idiots that did the upcharge and watched Corella with my family over the weekend. It was average. Um, but you know, that, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. They're just like incrementally increasing people. But some of these studios, you know, have to get an ROI on the on the big budget films, uh, especially with the, the movie theater still, you know, very slow to reopen. No, no question about it. And I think it, you know, uh, the HBO Max concept of, of, of actually introducing movies at the same time that they are in their theatrical window is not a here to stay concept because ultimately this was done because of the pandemic and the stay at home concept and a way for them to drive subscribers to their direct offering. Um, so so I, while they've committed to doing it for a period of time, I think ultimately we will see there being a theatrical window for these uh, very high budget, high uh, profile uh, releases and then making their way to the HBO Maxes versus maybe a traditional pay-per-view window or whatever it is that was there before. Um, but I agree, the, the consistent upcharging, if you started to add all of these things up from an economic standpoint, it's the concept that everyone said earlier, which is a la carte will ultimately cost more. And I think if everything moves to a pay per service or a direct pay per service, when you add it up, you probably are paying more than you were uh, previously. And that's why there's still so many subscribers, in my opinion, to the traditional platforms. Now, the funny thing is you talk about cutting the cord I've done both. I have my traditional, and granted, I'm in the media industry, so I want to see everything, but I have my traditional subscriptions, plus I have the Disney Pluses and all of the other subscriptions as well. So my, my media budget has, uh, has really increased. You probably have the fastest internet at your house too, but your kids are gone. So now you're just watching it as you say, quote, because you're in the media industry. So, so exactly. Mark, what, we're getting out of time here. So what, what are you watching actually on these streaming services? What show or movie have you seen recently that you would recommend to our listeners? You know, I, I am, I'm, a, I'm a movie person. So when it comes time for me to, to uh, 
um, break down and relax, you know, end my day and relax and try to chill. Uh, I, I tend to go to movies first. And so uh, I, I actually just last night watched the movie Race, which is not a new movie. It's an older movie, but it's uh, the, the, the Jesse Owens uh, movie. Uh, and it was it was just it was a great, great film. It wasn't you know, it's not your high budget film, but it was uh, it was a great film and it's timely for uh, for the time uh, and for the month that we're in and so forth. And so uh, I, I enjoyed that film. But uh, I, I pretty much will watch any movie. I'll give any movie a chance. Uh, I know the rest of my family will get up and leave. But if I've committed to watch a movie, I'll watch it from start to, to, to finish. And I, I'm not somebody who who gets up and leaves. And I just love consuming movies. I love storytelling. Well, if you do watch a show, the, the one that I will highly recommend right now, it's on, I think, Apple Plus. It's called Mythic Quest. It's about video games. I think you would like it. It's pretty funny. Well, I definitely take a look. And I do like those original series i like uh like the queen's gambit and other types of things i i really loved uh Maisel. i'm hoping it's going to come back uh just as strong as it was on the on the previous seasons and uh i, I actually binge watched it which i which i highly recommend if you haven't done it but i binge watched from start to end starting with season one episode one the sopranos all the way through and and knowing what happened because you've watched the whole series previously you see things in the earliest episodes that come up later that are just like, wait a second, how did that happen? How did they think about that? And was it just coincidental or did they really plan it that way? And uh, truly incredible to watch those things again. So uh, that's actually yeah. a good idea because I've run out of things that actually want to hold my attention for more than 30 seconds. So <laughs> this is a good point. All right, Mark, one last question before we go, which is where's the first place you're going to go sort of post-pandemic vacation either with your family or by yourself actually my 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 goal this year for travel besides work travel is to make it to both of my uh kids schools uh to see them uh at their schools uh my daughter just finished her freshman year uh, at wisconsin and i was so looking forward to pre-pandemic going to a big 10 game watching wisconsin play and 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 enjoying that so that is on our our scheduled trips for october and then my son is a senior he's an ncaa wrestler um at his school and so i want to be able to see him wrestle one more time before he hangs up his wrestling shoes uh and goes on to to whatever he decides to do in his life Awesome. Well, Mark, really appreciate your time and all your guidance, especially over the years. Uh, you've been an invaluable resource and friend and colleague to me. So thank you for joining the podcast and indulging me for a little bit. Hopefully our listeners got a kick of the, the business size of, of the media world. So thank you so much. Yeah, this is great. Thank you. And it's so great that you're doing this. I, I listen to a bunch of the podcasts and I think they're, they're enlightening and entertaining. Awesome. So you heard that listeners hit the like button, subscribe, smash it, whatever you want. Appreciate your time. All right, Mark, take care. Take care.